Section 3 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Coleman. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 3. Samuel Johnson was born at Lichfield in Staffordshire on the 18th of September, N.S., 1709, and his initiation into the Christian church was not delayed, for his baptism is recorded in the register of St. Mary's Parish in that city to have been performed on the day of his birth. His father is there styled gentleman, a circumstance of which an ignorant panegyrist has praised him for not being proud when the truth is that the appellation of gentleman, though now lost in the indiscriminate assumption of esquire, was commonly taken by those who could not boast of gentility. His father was Michael Johnson, a native of Derbyshire, of obscure extraction, who settled in Lichfield as a bookseller and stationer. His mother was Sarah Ford, descended of an ancient race of substantial yeomanry in Warwickshire. They were well advanced in years when they married, and never had more than two children, both sons. Samuel, their firstborn, who lived to be the illustrious character whose various excellence I am to endeavour to record, and Nathaniel, who died in his twenty-fifth year. Mr. Michael Johnson was a man of a large and robust body, and of a strong and active mind. Yet, as in the most solid rocks, veins of unsound substance are often discovered, there was in him a mixture of that disease, the nature of which eludes the, the most minute inquiry, though the effects are well known to be a weariness of life, an unconcern about those things which agitate the greater part of mankind, and a general sensation of gloomy wretchedness. From him, then, his son inherited, with some other qualities, quote, a vile melancholy, unquote, which in his too strong expression of any disturbance of the mind, quote, made him mad all his life, at least not sober, unquote. Michael was, however, forced by the narrowness of his circumstances to be very diligent in business, not only in his shop, but by occasionally resorting to several towns in the neighbourhood, some of which were at a considerable distance from Lichfield. At that time, booksellers' shops in the provincial towns of England were very rare, so that there was not one even in Birmingham, in which town old Mr. Johnson used to open a shop every market day. He was a pretty good Latin scholar, and a citizen so creditable as to be made one of the magistrates of Lichfield, and, being a man of good sense and skill in his trade, he acquired a reasonable share of wealth, of which, however, he afterwards lost the greatest part, by engaging unsuccessfully in a manufacture of parchment. He was a zealous high churchman and royalist, and retained his attachment to the unfortunate house of Stuart, though he reconciled himself, by casuistical arguments of expediency and necessity, 
to take the oaths imposed by the prevailing power. There is a circumstance in his life somewhat romantic, but so well authenticated that I shall not omit it. A young woman of Leek in Staffordshire, while he served his apprenticeship there, conceived a violent passion for him, and though it met with no favourable return, followed him to Lichfield, where she took lodgings opposite to the house in which he lived, and indulged her hopeless flame. When he was informed that it so preyed upon her mind that her life was in danger, he, with a generous humanity, went to her and offered to marry her. But it was then too late. Her vital power was exhausted, and she actually exhibited one of the very rare instances of dying for love. She was buried in the cathedral of Lichfield, and he, with a tender regard, placed a stone over her grave with this inscription. Here lies the body of Mrs. Elizabeth Blaney, a stranger. She departed this life, 20th of September, 1694. Johnson's mother was a woman of distinguished understanding. I asked his old schoolfellow, Mr. Hector, surgeon of Birmingham, if she was not vain of her son. He said, she had too much good sense to be vain, but she knew her son's value. Her piety was not inferior to her understanding, and to her must be ascribed those early impressions of religion upon the mind of her son, from which the world afterwards derived so much benefit. He told me that he remembered distinctly having had the first notice of heaven, a place to which good people went, and hell, a place to which bad people went, communicated to him by her, when a little child in bed with her, and that it might be the better fixed in his memory, she sent him to repeat it to Thomas Jackson, their man-servant. He not being in the way, this was not done, but there was no occasion for any artificial aid for its preservation. In following so very eminent a man from his cradle to his grave, every minute particular which can throw light on the progress of his mind is interesting. That he was remarkable, even in his earliest years, may easily be supposed. For to use his own words in his life of Sydenham, that the strength of his understanding, the accuracy of his discernment, and ardour of his curiosity, might have been remarked from his infancy by a diligent observer, there is no reason to doubt. For there is no instance of any man whose history has been minutely related that did not in every part of life discover the same proportion of intellectual vigour. In all such investigations, it is certainly unwise to pay too much attention to instances which the credulous relate with eager satisfaction and the more scrupulous or witty inquirer considers only as topics of ridicule. Yet there is a traditional story of the infant Hercules of Toryism, so curiously characteristic that I shall not withhold it. It was communicated to me in a letter from Miss Mary Aidy of Lichfield. When Dr. Sacheverell was at Lichfield, Johnson was not quite three years old. My grandfather Hammond observed him at the cathedral, perched upon his father's shoulders, 
listening and gaping at the much-celebrated preacher. Mr. Hammond asked Mr. Johnson how he could possibly think of bringing such an infant to church, and in the midst of so great a crowd. He answered, because it was impossible to keep him at home, for young as he was, he believed he had caught the public spirit and zeal for Sir Keverell, and would have stayed for ever in the church, satisfied with beholding him. Nor can I omit a little instance of that jealous independence of spirit and impetuosity of temper which never forsook him. The fact was acknowledged to me by himself upon the authority of his mother. One day, when the servant who used to be sent to school to conduct him home had not come in time, he set out by himself, though he was then so near-sighted that he was obliged to stoop down on his hands and knees to take a view of the kennel before he ventured to step over it. His schoolmistress, afraid that he might miss his way, or fall into the kennel, or be run over by a cart, followed him at some distance. He happened to turn about and perceive her. Feeling her careful attention as an insult to his manliness, he ran back to her in a rage and beat her, as well as his strength would permit. Of the power of his memory, for which he was all his life eminent to, to a degree almost incredible, the following early instance was told me in his presence at Litchfield in 1776 by his stepdaughter, Mrs. Lucy Porter, as related to her by his mother. When he was a child in petticoats and had learnt to read, Mrs. Johnson one morning put the common prayer book into his hands, pointed to the collect for the day and said, Sam, you must get this by heart. She went upstairs, leaving him to study it. But by the time she had reached the second floor, she heard him following her. "'What's the matter?' said she. "'I can say it,' he replied, and repeated it distinctly, though he could not have read it more than twice. But there has been another story of his, of his infant precocity, generally circulated and generally believed, the truth of which I am to refute upon his own authority.' It is told that, when a child of three years old, he chanced to tread upon a duckling, the eleventh of a brood, and killed it, upon which, it is said, he dictated to his mother the following epitaph. Here lies good master duck, whom Samuel Johnson trod on. If it had lived, it had been good luck, for then we'd had an odd one. There is surely internal evidence that this little composition combines in it what no child of three years old could produce without an extension of its faculties by immediate inspiration. Yet Mrs. Lucy Porter, Dr. Johnson's stepdaughter, positively maintained to me in his presence that there could be no doubt of the truth of this anecdote, for she had heard it from his mother. So difficult is it to obtain an authentic relation of facts, and such authority may there be for error. For he assured me that his father made the verses, and wished to pass them for his child's. He added, My father was a foolish old man, that is to say, foolish in talking of his children. Note. This anecdote of the duck 
though disproved by internal and external evidence, has nevertheless, upon supposition of its truth, been made the foundation of the following ingenious and fanciful reflections of Miss Seward, amongst the communications concerning Dr. Johnson, with which she has been pleased to favour me. These infant numbers contain the seeds of those propensities which through his life so strongly marked his character, of that poetic talent which afterwards bore such rich and plentiful fruits. For, excepting his orthographic works, everything which Dr. Johnson wrote was poetry, whose essence consists not in numbers or in jingle, but in the strength and glow of a fancy, to which all the stores of nature and of art stand in prompt administration, and in an eloquence which conveys their blended illustrations in a language more tunable than needs, or rhyme or verse, to add more harmony. The above little verses also show that superstitious bias which grew with his growth and strengthened with his strength, and, of late years particularly, injured his happiness by presenting to him the gloomy side of religion, rather than that bright and cheering one which gilds the period of closing life with the light of pious hope. This is so beautifully imagined that I would not suppress it. But, like many other theories, it is deduced from a supposed fact, which is, indeed, a fiction. End of note. Young Johnson had the misfortune to be much afflicted with a scrofula, or king's evil, which disfigured a countenance naturally well formed, and hurt his visual nerves so much that he did not see at all with one of his eyes, though its appearance was little different from that of the other. There is amongst his prayers one inscribed, When my eye was restored to its use, which ascertains a defect that many of his friends knew he had, though I never perceived it. I supposed him to be only near-sighted, and indeed I must observe that in no other respect could I discern any defect in his vision. On the contrary, the force of his attention and perceptive quickness made him see and distinguish all manner of objects, whether of nature or of art, with a nicety that is rarely to be found. When he and I were travelling in the highlands of Scotland, and I pointed out to him a mountain, which I observed resembled a cone, he corrected my inaccuracy, by showing me that it was indeed pointed at the top, but that one side of it was larger than the other. And the ladies, with whom he was acquainted, agree that no man was more nicely and minutely critical in the elegance of female dress. When I found that he saw the romantic beauties of Islam in Derbyshire much better than I did, I told him that he resembled an able performer upon a bad instrument. How false and contemptible, then, are all the remarks which have been made to the prejudice either of his candour or of his philosophy, founded upon a supposition that he was almost blind. It has been said that he contracted this grievous malady from his nurse. His mother, yielding to the superstitious notion, which, it is wonderful to think, 
prevailed so long in this country as to the virtue of the regal touch, a notion which our kings encouraged, and to which a man of such inquiry and such judgment as Kant could give credit, carried him to London, where he was actually touched by Queen Anne. Mrs. Johnson, indeed, as Mr. Hector informed me, acted by the advice of the celebrated Sir John Floyer, then a physician in Lichfield. Johnson used to talk of this very frankly, and Mrs. Piozzi has preserved his very picturesque description of the scene, as it remained upon his fancy. Being asked if he could remember Queen Anne, he had, he said, a confused but somehow a sort of solemn recollection of a lady in diamonds and a long black hood. This touch, however, was without any effect. I ventured to say to him, in allusion to the political principles in which he was educated, and of which he ever retained some odour, that, his mother had not carried him far enough, she should have taken him to Rome. He was first taught to read English by Dame Oliver, a widow, who kept a school for young children in Lichfield. He told me she could read the black letter, and asked him to borrow for her, from his father, a Bible in that character. When he was going to Oxford, she came to take leave of him, brought him in the simplicity of her kindness, a present of gingerbread, and said he was the best scholar she ever had. He delighted in mentioning this early compliment, adding with a smile that, this was as high a proof of his merit as he could conceive. His next instructor in English was a master whom, when he spoke of him to me, he familiarly called Tom Brown, who said he published a spelling book and dedicated it to the universe, but I fear no copy of it can now be had. He began to learn Latin with Mr. Hawkins, usher or under-master of Lichfield School, a man, said he, very skilful in his little way. With him he continued two years, and then rose to be under the care of Mr. Hunter, the headmaster, who, according to his account, was very severe, and wrong-headedly severe. He used, said he, to beat us unmercifully and he did not distinguish between ignorance and negligence, for he would beat a boy equally for not knowing a thing as for neglecting to know it. He would ask a boy a question, and if he did not answer it, he would beat him, without considering whether he had an opportunity of knowing how to answer it. For instance, he would call up a boy and ask him Latin for a candlestick, which the boy could not expect to be asked. Now, sir, if a boy could answer every question, there would be no need of a master to teach him. It is, however, but justice to the memory of Mr. Hunter to mention that though he might err in being too severe, the school of Lichfield was very respectable in his time. The late Dr. Taylor, prebendary of Westminster, who was educated under him, told me that, he was an excellent master, and that his ushers were most of them men of eminence, that Holbrook, one of the most ingenious men, best scholars, and best preachers of his age, 
was Usher during the greatest part of the time that Johnson was at school. Then came Haig, of whom as much might be said, with the addition that he was an elegant poet. Haig was succeeded by Green, afterwards Bishop of Lincoln, whose character in the learned world is well known. In the same form with Johnson was Congreve, who afterwards became chaplain to Archbishop Bolter, and by that connection obtained good preferment in Ireland. He was a younger son of the ancient family of Congreve in Staffordshire, of which the poet was a branch. His brother sold the estate. There was also Lowe, afterwards canon of Windsor. Indeed, Johnson was very sensible how much he owed to Mr. Hunter. Mr. Langton, one day, asked him how he had acquired so accurate a knowledge of Latin, in which, I believe, he was exceeded by no man of his time. He said, My master whipped me very well. Without that, sir, I should have done nothing. He told Mr. Langton that while Hunter was flogging his boys unmercifully, he used to say, and this I do to save you from the gallows. Johnson, upon all occasions, expressed his approbation of enforcing instruction by means of the rod. I would rather, said he, have the rod to be the general terror to all, to make them learn, than tell a child, if you do thus or thus, you will be more esteemed than your brothers or sisters. The rod produces an effect which, which terminates in itself. A child is afraid of being whipped, and gets his task, and there's an end on't. Whereas, by exciting emulation and comparisons of superiority, you lay the foundation of lasting mischief. You make brothers and sisters hate each other. When Johnson saw some young ladies in Lincolnshire, who were remarkably well behaved, owing to their mother's strict discipline and severe correction. He exclaimed, in one of Shakespeare's lines a little varied, Rod, I will honour thee for this thy duty. That superiority over his fellows, which he maintained with so much dignity in his march through life, was not assumed from vanity and ostentation, but was the natural and constant effect of those extraordinary powers of mind of which he could not but be conscious by comparison. The intellectual difference, which in other cases of comparison of characters, is often a matter of undecided contest, being as clear in his case as the superiority of stature in some men above others. Johnson did not strut or stand on tiptoe. He only did not stoop. From his earliest years, his superiority was perceived and acknowledged. He was, from the beginning, Greek Anax Andron, a king of men. His schoolfellow, Mr. Hector, has obligingly furnished me with many particulars of his boyish days, and assured me that he never knew him corrected at school, but for talking and diverting other boys from their business. He seemed to learn by intuition, for though indolence and procrastination were inherent in his constitution, whenever he made an exertion, he did more than anyone else. In short, here's a memorable instance of what has been often observed, that the boy is the man in miniature, 
and that the distinguishing characteristics of each individual are the same through the whole course of life. His favourites used to receive very liberal assistance from him, and such was the submission and deference with which he was treated, such the desire to obtain his regard, that three of the boys, of whom Mr. Hector was sometimes one, used to come in the morning as his humble attendants and carry him to school. One in the middle stooped while he sat upon his back, and one on each side supported him, and thus he was born triumphant. Such a proof of the early predominance of intellectual vigour is very remarkable, and does honour to human nature. Talking to me once himself of his being much distinguished at school, he told me, They never thought to raise me by comparing me to any one. They never said, Johnson is as good a scholar as such a one, but such a one is as good a scholar as Johnson. And this was said but of one, but of low, and I do not think he was as good a scholar. He discovered a great ambition to excel, which roused him to counteract his indolence. He was uncommonly inquisitive, and his memory was so tenacious that he never forgot anything that he either heard or read. Mr. Hector remembers having recited to him eighteen verses, which, after a little pause, he repeated verbatim, varying only one epithet, by which he improved the line. He never joined with the other boys in their ordinary diversions. His only amusement was in winter, when he took a pleasure in being drawn upon the ice by a boy barefooted, who pulled him along by a garter fixed round him. No very easy operation, as his size was remarkably large. His defective sight, indeed, prevented him from enjoying the common sports, and he once pleasantly remarked to me, how wonderfully well he had contrived to be idle without them. Lord Chesterfield, however, has justly observed in one of his letters, when earnestly cautioning a friend against the pernicious effects of idleness, that active sports are not to be reckoned idleness in young people, and that the listless torpor of doing nothing alone deserves that name. Of this dismal inertness of disposition, Johnson had all his life too great a share. Mr. Hector relates that he could not oblige him more than by sauntering away the hours of vacation in the fields, during which he was more engaged in talking to himself than to his companion. Dr. Percy, the Bishop of Dromore, who was long intimately acquainted with him, and has preserved a few anecdotes concerning him, regretting that he was not a more diligent collector, informs me that, when a boy, he was immoderately fond of reading romances of chivalry, and he retained his fondness for them through life, so that, adds his lordship, spending part of a summer at my parsonage house in the country, he chose for his regular reading the old Spanish romance of Felix Mart of Hercania, in folio, which he read quite through, yet I have heard him attribute to these extravagant fictions that unsettled turn of mind, which prevented his ever fixing in any profession. 
1725, I tat sixteen, after having resided for some time at the house of his uncle, Cornelius Ford, Johnson was, at the age of fifteen, removed to the school of Stourbridge, in Worcestershire, of which Mr. Wentworth was then master. This step was taken by the advice of his cousin, the Reverend Mr. Ford, a man in whom both talents and good dispositions were disgraced by licentiousness, but who was a very able judge of what was right. Note, he is said to be the original of the parson in Hogarth's modern midnight conversation. End of note. At this school he did not receive so much benefit as was expected. It has been said that he acted in the capacity of an assistant to Mr. Wentworth, in teaching the younger boys. Mr. Wentworth, he told me, was a very able man, but an idle man, and to me very severe, but I cannot blame him much. I was then a big boy. He saw I did not reverence him, and that he should get no honour by me. I had brought enough with me to carry me through, and all I should get at his school would be ascribed to my own labour, or to my former master, yet he taught me a great deal. He thus discriminated to Dr. Percy, Bishop of Dromore, his progress at his two grammar schools. At one, I learnt much in the school, but little from the master. In the other, I learnt much from the master, but little in the school. The bishop also informs me that Dr. Johnson's father, before he was received at Stourbridge, applied to have him admitted as a scholar and assistant to the Reverend Samuel Lee, M.A., headmaster of Newport School in Shropshire, a very diligent good teacher at that time in high reputation, under whom Mr. Hollis is said, in the memoirs of his life, to have been also educated. This application to Mr. Lee was not successful, but Johnson had afterwards the gratification to hear that the old gentleman, who lived to a very advanced age, mentioned it as one of the most memorable events of his life, that he was very near having that great man for his scholar. He remained at Stourbridge little more than a year, and then returned home, where, where he may be said to have loitered, for two years, in a state very unworthy his uncommon abilities. He had already given several proofs of his poetical genius, both in his school exercises and in other occasional compositions. Of these I have obtained a considerable collection, by the favour of Mr. Wentworth, son of one of his masters, and of Mr. Hector, his schoolfellow and friend, from which I select the following specimens. Translation of Virgil, Pastoral One. Melibius. Now, Titarus, you, supine and careless laid, play on your pipe beneath this beechen shade, while the wretched we about the world must roam, and leave our pleasing fields and native home. Here at your ease you sing your amorous flame, and the wood rings with Amaryllis' name. Titarus 
those blessings, friend, a deity bestowed, for I shall never think him less than God. Oft on his altar shall my firstlings lie, their blood the consecrated stones shall die. He gave my flocks to graze the flowery meads, and me to tune at ease the unequal reeds. Melibius my admiration only i expressed no spark of envy harbours in my breast that when confusion o'er the country reigns to you alone this happy state remains here i though faint myself must drive my goats far from their ancient fields and humble cots this scarce i lead who left on yonder rock to tender kids the hopes of all the flock had we not been perverse and careless grown, this dire event by omens was foreshown. Our trees were blasted by the thunder-stroke, and left-hand crows from an old hollow oak foretold the coming evil by their dismal croak. Translation of Horace, Book 1, Ode 22 The man, my friend, whose conscious heart with virtue's sacred ardour glows, nor taints with death the envenomed dart, nor needs the guard of Moorish bows. Though Scythia's icy cliffs he treads, or horrid Afric's faithless sands, or where the famed Hydaspe spreads his liquid wealth o'er barbarous lands. For while by Chloe's image charmed, too far in Sabine woods I strayed, me singing, careless and unarmed, a grisly wolf surprised and fled. No savage more portentous stained Apulia's spacious wilds with gore, no fiercer Juba's thirsty land, dire nurse of raging lions bore, Place me where no soft summer gale, Among the quivering branches sighs, Where clouds condensed for ever veil With horrid gloom the frowning skies. Place me beneath the burning line, A clime denied to human race, I'll sing of Chloe's charms divine, Her heavenly voice and beauteous face. Translation of Horace Book 2, Ode 9 Clouds do not always veil the skies, Nor showers immerse the verdant plain, Nor do the billows always rise, Or storms afflict the ruffled main, Nor Valgius, on the Armenian shores, Do the chained waters always freeze, Not always furious Boreas roars, or bends with violent force the trees. But you are ever drowned in tears, For Maestes dead you ever mourn, No setting soul can ease your care, But finds you sad at his return. The wise, experienced Grecian sage Mourned not Antilochus so long, Nor did King Priam's hoary age So much lament his slaughtered son. Leave off, at length, these woman's sighs, Augustus' numerous trophies sing, Repeat their prince's victories, To whom all nations tribute bring, Nifates rolls an humbler wave, At length the undaunted Scythian yields, Content to live the Roman slave. Translation of Horace, 
and scarce forsakes his native fields. Translation of part of the dialogue between Hector and Andromache from the sixth book of Homer's Iliad. She ceased, then godlike Hector answered kind, his various plumage sporting in the wind. That post and all the rest shall be my care. But shall I then forsake the unfinished war? How would the Trojans brand great Hector's name, and one base action sully all my fame, acquired by wounds and battles bravely fought? Oh, how my soul abhors so mean a thought! Long since I learned to slight this fleeting breath, and view with cheerful eyes approaching death, the inexorable sisters have decreed that Priam's house and Priam's self shall bleed. The day will come in which proud Troy shall yield and spread its smoking ruins o'er the field. Yet Hecuba's nor Priam's hoary age, whose blood shall quench some Grecian's thirsty rage, nor my brave brothers that have bit the ground, their souls dismissed through many a ghastly wound, can in my bosom half that grief create, as the sad thought of your impending fate. When some proud Grecian dame shall tasks impose, mimic your tears and ridicule your woes, beneath Hyperia's waters shall you sweat, and fainting scarce support the liquid weight. Then shall some Argive loud insulting cry, Behold the wife of Hector, guard of Troy. Tears at my name shall drown those beauteous eyes, And that fair bosom heave with rising sighs. Before that day, by some brave hero's hand, May I lie slain and spurn the bloody sand. To a young lady on her birthday. Note, Mr. Hector informs me that this was made almost impromptu in his presence. End of note. This tributary verse received my fair, warm with an ardent lover's fondest prayer. May this returning day for ever find thy form more lovely, more adorned thy mind. All pains, all cares, May favouring heaven remove all but the sweet solicitudes of love. May powerful nature join with grateful art to point each glance and force it to the heart. O oh, then, when conquered crowds confess thy sway, when even proud wealth and prouder wit obey, my fair, be mindful of the mighty trust. Alas, tis hard for beauty to be just. Those sovereign charms with strictest care employ, Nor give the generous pain the worthless joy. With his own form acquaint the forward fool, Shown in the faithful glass of ridicule. Teach mimic censure her own faults to find, No more let coquettes to themselves be blind, So shall Belinda's charms improve mankind. THE YOUNG AUTHOR When first the peasant, long inclined to roam, Forsakes his rural sports and peaceful home, 
pleased with the scene the smiling ocean yields, he scorns the verdant meads and flowery fields, then dances jocund o'er the watery way, while the breeze whispers and the streamers play, unbounded prospects in his bosom roll, and future millions lift his rising soul, in blissful dreams he digs the golden mine, and raptured sees the new-found ruby shine. Joys insincere, thick clouds invade the skies, loud roar the billows, high the waves arise. Sickening with fear, he longs to view the shore, and vows to trust the faithless deep no more. So the young author, panting after fame, and the long honours of a lasting name, entrusts his happiness to humankind, more false, more cruel than the seas or wind. Toil on, dull crowd, in ecstasies he cries, for wealth or title, perishable prize, while I those transitory blessings scorn, secure of praise from ages yet unborn. This thought once formed, all counsel comes too late, he flies to press and hurries on his fate, Swiftly he sees the imagined laurels spread, and feels the unfading wreath surround his head. Warned by another's fate, vain youth be wise, those dreams were settles once, and ogilvies. The pamphlet spreads, incessant hisses rise, to some retreat the baffled writer flies, where no sad critics snarl, no sneers molest safe from the tart lampoon and stinging jest, there begs of heaven a less distinguished lot, glad to be hid and proud to be forgot. Epilogue, intended to have been spoken by a lady who was to personate the ghost of Hermione. Note, some young ladies at Litchfield, having proposed to act the distressed mother, Johnson wrote this and gave it to Mr. Hector to convey it privately to them. End of note. Ye blooming train who give despair or joy, bless with a smile or with a frown destroy, in whose fair cheeks destructive cupids wait, and with unerring shafts distribute fate, whose snowy breasts, whose animated eyes, each youth admires, though each admirer dies. Whilst you deride their pangs in barbarous play, unpitying see them weep and hear them pray, and unrelenting sport ten thousand lives away. For you, you fair, I quit the gloomy plains, where sable night in all her horror reigns. No fragrant bowers, no delightful glades, receive the unhappy ghosts of scornful maids. For kind, for tender nymphs, the myrtle blooms, And weaves her bending boughs in pleasing glooms, Perennial roses deck each purple veil, And scents ambrosial breathe in every gale. Far hence are banished vapours, spleen and tears, Tea, scandal, ivory teeth, and languid airs, No pug, nor favourite Cupid there enjoys the balmy kiss for which poor Tharsis dies. Formed to delight, they use no foreign arms, 
nor torturing whalebones pinched them into charms. No conscious blushes there their cheeks inflame, for those who feel no guilt can know no shame. Unfaded still their former charms they show, around them pleasures wait, and joys for ever new. But cruel virgins meet severer fates, expelled and exiled from the blissful seats, to dismal realms and regions void of peace, where furies ever howl and serpents hiss, o'er the sad plains perpetual tempest sigh, and poisonous vapours blackening o'er the sky, with livid hue the fairest face o'ercast, and every beauty withers at the blast, where'er they fly their lovers' ghosts pursue, inflicting all those ills which once they knew, vexation, fury, jealousy, despair, vex every eye and every bosom tear, their foul deformities by all descried, no maid to flatter and no paint to hide, then melt ye fair, while crowds around you sigh, nor let disdain sit lowering in your eye, with pity soften every awful grace, and beauty smile auspicious in each face, to ease their pains exert your milder power, so shall you guiltless reign, and all mankind adore. The two years which he spent at home, after his return from Stourbridge, he passed in what he thought idleness, and was scolded by his father for his want of steady application. He had no settled plan of life, nor looked forward at all, but merely lived from day to day. Yet he read a great deal in a desultory manner, without any scheme of study, as chance threw books in his way, and inclination directed him through them. He used to mention one curious instance of his casual reading, when but a boy. Having imagined that his brother had hid some apples behind a large folio upon an upper shelf in his father's shop, he climbed up to search for them. There were no apples, but the large folio proved to be Petrarch, whom he had seen mentioned in some preface as one of the restorers of learning. His curiosity having been thus excited, he sat down with avidity and read a great part of the book. What he read during these two years, he told me, was not works of mere amusement, not voyages and travels, but all literature, sir, all ancient writers, all manly, though but little Greek, only some of Anacreon and Hesiod. But in this regular manner, added he, I had looked into a great many books, which were not commonly known at the universities, where they seldom read any books, but what are put into their hands by their tutors, so that when I came to Oxford, Dr. Adams, now master of Pembroke College, told me I was the best qualified for the university that he had ever known come there. In estimating the progress of his mind during these two years, as well as in future periods of his life, we must not regard his own hasty confession of idleness, for we see, when he explains himself, that he was acquiring various stores, and indeed he himself concluded the account with saying, I would not have you think I was doing nothing then. 
he might perhaps have studied more assiduously, but it may be doubted whether such a mind as his was not more enriched by roaming at large in the fields of literature than if it had been confined to any single spot. The analogy between body and mind is very general, and the parallel will hold as to their food, as well as any other particular. The flesh of animals who feed excursively is allowed to have a higher flavour than that of those who are cooped up. May there not be the same difference between men who read as their taste prompts, and men who are confined in cells and colleges to stated tasks. End of section 3